0: Hello America, welcome to the Muni Lowdown Podcast. My name is Paul Graves and I'm the managing editor for Debtwire Municipals. I'm coming to you from Boston on the afternoon of May 2nd, but I have a talented team of journalists joining me. From our Chicago office, we have Caitlin Devitt. Caitlin, what's on your menu today?
1: Today I'm gonna to be talking about American Leadership Academy. It's a charter school operator in Arizona that's been featured in the news recently.
0: And from our New York
2: office, we have Patrick Ferguson. Pat, what will you be discussing? Yeah, so we're going to be revisiting the two famous nuclear projects, one failed and one being built. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the utility JEA in a spite with the Municipal Electric Authority of Georgia over a power purchase agreement. And we're going to take a look at the South Carolina Senate's rejection of, the, of an appointee to uh, Santee Cooper's board. Thanks, Pat. And also we have Young Lim, our
0: desk editor, joining us. But finally, most importantly here, because this is a guest, and guests always go first. The guests are always important. We have Kyle Yonker from our sister product, DebtWire North America. Kyle, welcome to the podcast. And why are you here?
3: (laughs) Yeah, thanks, Paul. Um, So for all the DebtWire Mini subscribers, my name is Kyle Yonker. I'm an associate editor with DebtWire North America. That's the DebtWire product that focuses on North American distressed corporate debt. I'm here uh, to talk about pg and um, because we've done a lot of coverage uh, together um, with the Munis team, and uh, th- some of the stories that I have done have been cross-posted on on the Munis site. And it's sort of a huge, sprawling situation uh, involving not just traditional parties we see in a bankruptcy case, but also regulators, legislators, California governor, federal regulatory bodies, criminal judges, the list goes on. So we sort of have a lot of reporters following the different angles um, of the case to make sure we're, we're covering all of this information flow.
0: All right. And, and for the uninitiated, PG&E is Pacific Gas and Electric. So Kyle, where are we in the case and how did we get here?
3: Yeah, right. So PG&E is Pacific Gas and Electric. Um, I sort of assume most of the listeners are familiar with this part of the story, Um, but the headlines are PG&E is a huge utility in California. It serves 16 million customers with electricity and natural gas. Uh, And because of potentially massive liabilities due to wildfires caused by its utility equipment, it filed for bankruptcy in late January of this year. Um, And now it's sort of still sitting there in bankruptcy. It needs to craft a bankruptcy plan while California's governor and legislature come up with some kind of policy solution to mitigate wildfires and try to spread costs, um, the cost of the wildfires across a broader cross-section of California um, instead of just the utilities. Uh, We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Um, So those are sort of the headlines. One of the things I wanted to stress here is that, uh, you know, in terms of how we got here, what I don't think gets talked about enough in reporting is the extent to which California is in a crisis over the PG&E situation. Uh, and that's not just me saying it. The politicians and experts out there are, are, are all saying it, and they know it much better than I do. Climate change in California is creating more fuel for fire. There are strange and extreme winds occurring that cause fires to spread more rapidly. The damage from the last few years of fires is unprecedented, um, and California doesn't really know how to deal with it sort of understandably I guess and so they're trying to figure it out now and as we wrote about last in a story from last week the, the PG&E bankruptcy is sort of now tied up in this this legislative process that's occurring um, we'll talk about more about that in a little bit too uh, and at the same time uh, PG&E sort of has been a historically bad actor in terms of its infrastructure management and safety culture so you sort of have this toxic mix of vulnerable utility infrastructure and, and vast wildlands in California that that are at risk of wildfires and that's that's sort of what we're looking at here.
0: So as we look out the next couple of months, what's the next major development in the PG and E case that people should be watching out for?
3: Well, I don't think there's any one thing to point to, but there are two what I think are interesting themes running along in parallel at the moment. The first is that pg and likely needs a legislative fix before it can exit bankruptcy, uh, and this is something the company certainly believes. They filed a motion yesterday to extend ex- its exclusive period to file a restructuring plan until November, essentially saying that there are numerous regulatory and legislative issues that need to be resolved first so that they have more clarity around what the regulatory framework is going to be as they craft their plan of reorganization. California Governor Gavin Newsom has set in motion an ambitious plan to set up two funds that will be essentially forward-looking, multi-billion-dollar wildfire insurance funds, which obviously requires a ton of coordination and thinking and planning. Um, And his strike team report from last month also recommends reforming California's legal doctrine of inverse condemnation which holds utilities accountable for fires caused by their equipment, even if they don't act negligently. And that's an issue that has sort of been at the center of this. The ratings agencies have specifically said that California needs to change this doctrine if the state's utilities are going to retain or return to investment-grade rating status. Utilities have long uh, sort of sought to change this idea of inverse condemnation, uh, or IC as they call it, So attempts to reform it could end up being politically controversial. Um, This reform agenda initiated by the governor will be taken up next by a blue-ribbon commission jointly appointed by the governor and the legislature, and they'll be issuing another more detailed report with recommendations um, for legislators in the next couple of weeks. The governor said he wants to have a legislative package in place by July 12th. That's when the legislature takes its summer recess. So this the space, sort of like the legislative regulatory space, will be one to watch for for additional developments. Um, in parallel, in the meantime, the company needs to come up with a way to estimate a claims pool for the 2017 and 2018 wildfires, which are the li- liabilities or prospective liabilities, I guess, that drove PG&E into bankruptcy. Um, our, de- our legal analysts have written about this. There needs to be a claims estimation motion from the debtor and then what will follow will likely be a flood of pleadings and declarations uh, and other testimony in support of why the claims should be this or why they should be that. The result will be an ultimate claims pool size uh, that needs to be funded as part of the exit from bankruptcy. Um, and so these these wildfire victims will likely be the largest single or, or nearly the largest single constituency or creditor in the, in the case. Um, and the company has said it wants to set up a trust to administer and fund those claims. So that will be that will be the next thing to watch for as well.
0: So I've heard this term about the municipalization of PG&E assets. Uh, tell me more about what that means and, and whether or not you think that's a real possibility.
3: Well, as it stands today, I I don't think it's a real possibility, and I'm not sure it's even a really good idea. Um, but this idea of municipalizing California utility or PG&E infrastructure Um, Might be an interesting thought exercise, nonetheless, for Muni's listeners, um, because people are certainly thinking about it and have thought about it for many years, most notably Sacramento took over PG&E's lines in the 1940s, uh, and and the city was tied up in litigation with PG&E for many years because of it. But everything that's in motion now is pointing to returning the utilities back to financial health or investment-grade status. Um, rather than a municipal or state takeover, the governor's strike team report uh, focused on creating two funds and reforming inverse condemnation as potential policy solutions and only mentioned in passing this idea of municipalization, um, which you can sort of read into that any, any way you want, but he said specifically that he wants California to have a debate about these ideas in the report and in comparison the idea of municipalizing is is potentially just as complicated and worthy of a, uh, a public debate but that's not that's sort of not what he's saying in his report that's what, not what his experts are saying and in addition it obviously requires massive due diligence on the part of the, the municipalities and all of the reforms that it entails across across California um, and outside of a few hot zones like San Francisco I'm not aware uh, that those analyses are actually taking place, um, and if you think about it, it's sort of a terrible idea politically. pg and is in, in a bad spot. They're on their knees in bankruptcy. They're trying to get control of their equipment, so they won't start any more fires. They have major problems they need to address. Californians deeply hate PG&E, so why would the state step in and make PG&E's problems its own? Uh, maybe it would in an extreme scenario, and as extreme of a crisis this is for California, I don't think, I don't think we're there yet. That's just my opinion. A- additionally, a, a political science professor that I spoke with um, also noted that PG&E infrastructure is sort of set up in a way that helps to spread costs throughout its system. For example, if San Francisco were to take over the wires in the city, then PG&E loses that affluent ratepayer base, and ratepayers then in less affluent areas outside of the Bay Area might end up having uh, to pay more. And the politics or the optics, as they say, of that um, are pretty bad.
0: Kyle, thanks so much for joining us. You've been doing some outstanding reporting. Keep it up and please come back and share updates with us as this case moves along. So let's keep it moving. Caitlin, American Leadership Academy, a relatively large charter school based in, operated, I should say, based in Arizona. Tell us a little bit more.
1: Thanks, Paul. Um, well, American Leadership Academy, or ALA, as it's also known, is, um, as you said, relatively large. It opened about t- It opened 10 years ago, and since then, it's been in a period of significant growth, and it now has a total of 12 schools. So the Arizona Republic, the state newspaper, has run a series of stories over the past year or longer targeting ALA and other charter schools in um, a series of stories. Arizona has lots of charter schools, and um, it's known by advocates, by charter school advocates, to be friendly in part because it has relatively low oversight and regulations. For example, it just has one um, board that oversees Um, the charter schools as opposed to other and as an authorizer as opposed to other states which have dozens. So ALA in response to the negative press it got some last year and then and then more recently it got some more bad press um, and was featured in the Arizona Republic so it held a call this week with investors to address and to respond to the newspaper series and answer any questions that um, investors might have. We've been following um, the credit for a few years, even before the stories that came out, because in December of 2017, they issued almost $200 million of, of uh, uh, bonds, and that was the largest charter school borrowing to date. If you guys look, if you remember, in December of 2017, that was that big rush to market before Trump's tax um, rewrite went into effect, so everybody was bringing deals to market. But still, the ALA deal attracted a lot of investors. We reported on that at the time. So the recent um, Arizona Republic stories focused on uh, the audits on a- on an auditor who um, was the auditor for ALA as well as 22 other charter schools. But he's been cited for for inadequate audits of ALA and of another unnamed charter school. So that was the feature of the those recent Arizona Republic um, stories. ALA has, since those st- um, stories come out, it restated its 2017 audit to include new payments to its controversial founder and former board chair, um, who's named Glenn Way. Glenn Way was also the subject of the earlier newspaper articles from last year.
0: So who's the auditor in question? And uh, a follow-up to that is, is it typical to... To have a, a one-person firm be responsible for uh, an auditing project of this size? I,
1: I don't think it is. His name is Joel Huber, H-U-B-E-R, and um, I guess he was widely used, like I said, by I think up to 26 different charter schools, many of them smaller than ALA. According to the newspaper stories, one of the things is he's very um, inexpensive he doesn't charge very much. For example, I think with ALA, the audits, they paid him like a total of $11,000, and the newspaper quoted other auditors saying that that, that the size of the, of the charter operator and the complexity, they have a lot of debt, and like I said, 12 schools outstanding, um, w- they would charge at least $30,000 or more for that. So he was a low bidder, and he was pretty active. Now he's suspended while the state oversight board does it— um, Completes its investigation. I think it's supposed to get back in um in June, but to answer your other question, you know, investors actually raised that during the co- the call. They asked if from now on, ALA is going to use a f- auditor with a you know more than one a more than a one man shop and with either a large regional or even a national presence. And ALA said yes. Those are the firms that they're looking at right now. They're just finishing their RFP on it, and they expect to announce the name of their new auditor within a few days.
0: So generally, how did the investor call go?
1: Well, officials told investors that operationally and financially the school's doing well. Enrollment, they say, remains stable. Everything is, you know, teacher retention. Everything remains on track despite this negative press. And um, investors asked a bunch of questions. Like I said, a lot of questions about the auditor, several questions about Glenway, Way, uh, the payments and the restated financials. And officials also said they they plan to come to market again this year with, you know, twenty five to thirty million dollars for two of its campuses. So they said they want to close out the auditor issue in the books on the financial year and then they're going to turn to the borrowing in September or October. So they they gave investors plenty of time to ask questions. Investors did ask plenty of questions and 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 then the call ended after that.
0: Has this affected bond trading at all?
1: actually it has not seemed to affect bond trading when you know take a look at Emma it looks like um, the price has mostly stayed the same or if anything they've actually strengthened in the last few days um, since ALA several days ago posted a five page single space response to the newspaper stories on Emma since then we've seen a little bit of strengthening but mostly the same they're selling the long bonds due in 2047 or 52 are selling around 101 to yield 4.5% that's you know slightly up from uh, around par or even down to 98 in the last year or so
0: all right and f- for those that, that aren't quite familiar emma stands for electronic municipal market access but uh in related news in chicago caitlin looks like there's been another charter school strike uh, what's going on there
1: yeah, right, Paul. So today was um, the start of another charter school strike. It's really unprecedented, literally unprecedented, what's happening in Chicago, and this is being billed as um, by the Chicago Teachers Union as the first multi-employer employer charter school strike, meaning in history, meaning this is the first time that. The, the staff and teachers are striking against multiple operators. In the past, this is, I think, the third strike of the year, and the other ones have just been um, against one operator. So they're calling this the first multi-employer chart, uh, charter school strike. And it's part of the rising tide of unionized charter schools, at least in Chicago. The CTU is working hard to unionize the charter school staff and teachers, And um, you know, it puts CTU in a funny position because they also work pretty hard to try to cap the growth of charters because of the competition with traditional schools. So this new strike started this morning. They hit the picket lines this morning. It was originally going to include five schools, but deals last minute, late night deals were reached with two or three of the schools. So now they're they're striking at three schools which are operated by two operators. One is the Instituto Del Progreso Latino, forgive my bad Spanish, and the other one is the Pilsen Wellness Center. As far as I can tell, neither operator has any bonds outstanding.
0: All right, thanks a lot, Caitlin. Let's keep it moving. Patrick. Tell us a little bit more about what's going on with JEA and the Municipal Electric Authority of Georgia, better known as MEAG,
2: to our listeners. So, Bob, the saga continues. JEA is in talks with the Municipal Electric Authority of Georgia, at how we'll just refer to now as MEAG, over the Vogel project. And uh, there's been reports to cut a deal on the disputed PPA. This is uh, from news reports from News 4 Jackson, and Florida Times Union. Uh, no details on a potential deal have been released, so it's just uh, just just from those those news reports. Uh, but the reports come after a judge in a federal district court in Georgia shot down Miag's case against JEA last month. JEA has its own case against Miag, which is still sitting in a federal district court in Florida. So some of these negotiations could be in consequence of uh, Miag's case being shot down. So Miag and JEA have been fighting over the validity of this power purchase agreement, which, if negated, could have dire consequences for the Vogel nuclear project. So how's the Vogel project going? Well, it seems to be going okay, or at least on, on track. So, Southern Company, the parent company of Georgia Power, which is the majority owner of the nuclear project, reported earlier this week that the plant construction of the three and four units at the plant were on target uh, would meet the November 2021 and November 2022 in service dates, although they think uh, that operations at the two units could begin as early as I think it's April 2021 and 2022. And also in recent news there with the project. So uh, last last month or March, I can't remember exactly, the federal government installed or handed out its third installment, I believe, of $3.7 billion to the owners of the plant uh, to keep the project going.
0: All right. So Patrick, if I say Charlie Condon,
2: who is he and why should our listeners care? So Charlie Condon is the former Attorney General of South Carolina, and he is currently the interim chairman on Santee Cooper's board of directors. So Governor South Carolina Governor Henry McMaster appointed him as a full time as full time chairman of the board at, at Santee Cooper, but a panel of senators rejected his appointment this week. Uh, he could still be appointed if the full Senate agrees, but that looks unlikely now. Uh, McMaster previously appointed Condon as interim chairman uh, when the Senate was out of session in the summer of last year so that debacle caused a huge up, uproar and went, eventually went to South Carolina Supreme Court the court ended up siding with the governor in November of last year which is kind of a blow to the to senators and congressmen in, in, in South Carolina so the rejection of his appointment is largely seen as uh, payback from the senators and it's also really important to note that condon is is seen as an ally to the governor and mcmaster has long supported the sale of santi cooper and so some may see condon as kind of a, a, a device or a, a way to to speed up or further the the sale of the of the public utility
0: all right and Santee cooper is also referred to as the south carolina public service authority
2: but besides the appointment of condon what else is going on with santi cooper so just like JEA, the news doesn't stop with this project. In the last week, a retail investor of Santee Cooper's mini-bond program sued the utility, claiming that interest rates were artificially too low. So these mini-bonds range from $200 and $500 and were sold to retail investors between 2014 and 2016 to help fund the VC summer project. Santee Cooper sold almost $120 million of these bonds. The plaintiff is claiming that Santy Cooper knew there were problems with the VC Summer project, and this goes into other legal cases. But hid the information, and investors would not have bought the bonds if they were aware of these problems. That's just one case, one new court case against Santy Cooper. Uh, earlier this month, Westinghouse, the former contractor on the VC uh, Summer nuclear project, and which is in bankruptcy, sued Santy Cooper earlier this month over. Uh, remaining infrastructure at the nuclear site, and it, Westinghouse claims there 's tens of millions of dollars sitting there, so Westinghouse argues that Santy Cooper has impeded the company in selling the equipment. Westinghouse argues that the that the equipment should be sold soon so it doesn 't deteriorate and lose its value, and says that he even lost out on a deal to sell the equipment to Southern Company for the Vogel nuclear project. Meanwhile, Santy Cooper argues that all it owns all the equipment of the site and Westinghouse does not have a, a legal claim on that, uh, on that property. Thanks, Pat. And, and finally, Young, we had a
0: webinar yesterday on cannabis. Uh, tell the listeners a little bit more.
4: Thanks, Paul. Municipal Municipals hosted a webinar on May 1st on the impact of cannabis on state and local budgets. It is entitled Everything You Wanted to Know But Were Afraid to Ask About Cannabis and Muniland. We looked at states where marijuana is legal for medicinal and recreational purposes and where legalization is still in progress. In turn, we discussed the budget and credit impact on states where marijuana is decriminalized. With that in mind, states are grappling with, with a twofold scenario. One, the fact that marijuana use and distribution is illegal under federal law, which restricts the usage of bank transactions. And two, cannabis res- revenue is not as large of an income maker as predicted. Our webinar, available online at DebtWire.com, has a PowerPoint presentation, which goes more in depth of what I mentioned, and the audio version is available on the DebtWire radio channel on SoundCloud or the Apple Podcast app.
0: Thanks, Young. Thanks to all the journalists that participated today. And a special thank you to our podcast producer, Andrew Cosentino, who always makes sure that our mics sound right. Hope you enjoyed it. Look forward to talking to you next week. Take care.